It is delightful to be able to come together this Sunday afternoon, isn't it? To appreciate the blessing that's ours, to understand that the first day of the week is the finest of all the days of the week, and we have the privilege of pouring out our feelings, our express appreciation to the God whom we look forward to being with forever throughout all the ceaseless ages of eternity. The psalmist declared in Psalm 29, verse number 2, about the blessedness that comes with worship, and haven't we already participated in that so far this evening? As you perhaps have noted in the bulletin earlier today, and also on the wall behind me, we're going to look this evening into the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. I would encourage you to be turning to that location. Brother Wayne just read a moment ago, verses 24 to 27 of that chapter, and as you perhaps give some thought to this introductory slide, it is just exceedingly general in the following observation. The Old Testament is such a rich treasure in that there are certainly so many matters that point us directly to faith-building enterprises. And by that I mean this. Mankind doesn't know the future. None of us know the specificity, the details, the finer points, if you please, of what the future holds. And yet, within the pages of the Old Testament, rather particularly, we find many, many examples of specific, minute, exact prophecies. And this wasn't just matters related to what would occur the next day, or what would occur even a year or two down the road from that time. But some of them had to do, quite frankly, with hundreds and even sometimes more than a millennium later. We come tonight. To reflect for oh, the next few minutes at least, and I'll never do it justice in the few moments that we have, but to reflect on one of the most amazing, one of the most remarkable, one of the most faith-building prophecies to be found in the Old Testament. It is that text of Daniel chapter 9. I hope that for the next few moments you and I can tread joyously upon what Daniel in the long ago was reminded of and how that it was for him and for his people a matter of such intense investigation and a matter of such intense, joyous blessing. I hope tonight if you and I can do that, we're going to look in at the 70 weeks prophecy that Daniel was given and we will revisit some of those specific details in just a moment. But surely, as you begin with me, it would perhaps be entirely fair to do it this way. We've often been reminded of how important it is to never separate a passage from its context, to understand how often that can provide illuminating detail, how it can in fact set the stage so that we never take the passage in the way God never intended it. For that reason... The year is 605 B.C. for the first observation I'll invite you to make. In that year, and in fact the previous one, you remember that the Babylonians in such a rather powerful way came against the Judean place, the capital city of Jerusalem, and they overwhelmed it. Now Jeremiah and others had prophesied about this event for over two decades. In fact, much had been said about the need for repentance and the need to turn to God, but yet the people had no interest in it. And therefore, they journeyed down a long and winding road of rebellion toward God. And just as the God of heaven asserted in the prophet Amos, the time had come, prepare to meet thy God. Amos 4 verse 12. And so it was the Babylonians came. And you'll notice in this first 
encounter with the children of Israel. They again were decisively victorious, but they carried off captive the young man you and I would call Daniel. He was taken forcibly from his homeland, taken from the place that, of course, he had known. And as you'll so to notice with me on that slide, Daniel was ultimately to be a powerful servant to the God of heaven. For decades yet to come, though in captivity he would be, he had the privilege of standing for the nature of the God of heaven in the midst of Babylonian and later Persian forces, he nonetheless could hold high the truthfulness of the nature of the God of heaven. And how well he did it. He held out the hope of that remnant of which God had spoken previously to some of the other prophets. You'll note about the middle of that slide. There came a time, long after that year 605 BC, remember Daniel was still alive. He was no doubt an elderly gentleman by this time. And as he was reading in the prophecies, especially those in Jeremiah, he came to realize that the 70 years that God had foretold for the duration of the captivity, it was about up. Would you piece together what I just said? God had told Jeremiah. God had revealed to him that though the people were going into captivity, it was not going to be permanent. God had told them that it was only going to last seven decades. Now that to you and me seems like a long time, and no doubt it did to many of them. But nonetheless, the fact was, God said, I will bring you back. I will again allow you to come back to this place for which you so intently look, Jerusalem, the environs surrounding the Judean countryside. When Daniel read then in passages that foretold 70 years, it would seem that he became a bit excited and he turned his attention, as you can see on that slide, to a prayer toward God. Could I invite you to notice in the first two verses of Daniel chapter 9, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years of the desolations of Jerusalem. Might you and I be impressed? Here was a man who, by reading the word of God, trusted it so fully, he knew exactly that what God had foretold was now about to happen. The time had come. Now Daniel didn't know all the details of what the God of heaven was going to do, but he had conviction that it was going to take place. May I ask if our confidence in the Word of God is as thorough as Daniel's was? We can read something, and just because God said it, we have the fullest of conviction that that's the way it shall be. Oh, how we need to have that kind of faith, and that kind of assurance, and that kind of reliance upon the things of the Word of God. But upon his appreciation of that, Daniel then turned his attention in prayer to God, praying fervently and earnestly that that deliverance and that which was to follow the 70 years would take place. Much of the next major section of that chapter is Daniel petitioning God, praying for that deliverance, confessing his errors and the errors of the people, for that is what sent them to captivity in the first place. And as he made that prayer, if I could at least make a small statement, it would seem to me the finest Old Testament prayer 
in the entirety of the Bible. A man whose heart was full of humility, desirous of God directing the affairs of time and bringing His people back. Daniel prayed in terms of repentance. He prayed in terms of God's favor and blessing upon himself and the people. He prayed that God's will would be accomplished. We find in it such a genuine and humble petition. For that reason, you'll note near the bottom of that slide, isn't it impressive how wonderfully God responded to that prayer? The response was immediate. May I turn your attention to verse number 20. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation." Isn't it fascinating? God, upon hearing that humble and powerful petition, immediately dispatched Gabriel to provide information, to provide the answer to Daniel's petition, to provide a rather powerful message to this penitent man. At the bottom of that slide, may I make one final statement before we launch into a more careful study of the passage itself. Having looked a little bit at the introductory features and the moving character of Daniel, there are some who in our modern day will take what we're about to study tonight and they will apply it to the second coming of Christ. They, in essence, will say it really has very little, if any, bearing on Jesus in terms of His first coming or on anything related to the church or any current blessing of the gospel era. They are wrong about that. What we're about to see shines a brilliant and illuminating light on the blessedness we enjoy today in the Christian era. And certainly it paints a dramatic picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. To see that, let's look at the next slide. As the text is, un, is it's revealed to Daniel, we just read verse number 21, and while Daniel was speaking, Gabriel came with information and verse number 22 proceeds like this. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision." God gave a message to Daniel. Did you note the verbs? It was his desire that Daniel understand. It was his desire that Daniel appreciate the message. This was not merely an emotional thing. It wasn't merely something better felt than told. It was to relate to the cognition of a message and his understanding of it and the ability that he would have to use it for the betterment of what he would teach and preach and the upbuilding of God's people upon earth. You'll note at the top of that slide, the message that God through Gabriel delivered to Daniel involved a powerful chronology. The first two words of verse 24, 70 weeks. The message was couched in the development of what was described as 70 weeks. Now, as you and I look forward to the appreciation of it, before we develop that point more thoroughly, 
Let's reflect upon the remaining part of verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Six things are specifically referenced, enumerated, and to some extent described. Look at the first three of them. May I draw your attention that the inspired writer, under the direction, of course, of the Holy Spirit, used three particular words, and you'll note if I could call your attention to them. Transgression, sins, iniquity. The first three things that God wished to convey to Gabriel, or through Gabriel to Daniel, was the God of heaven's plan whereby the human family could be freed from the ter- terrible bondage and the terrible features characteristic of iniquity and sin and transgression. The club of sin had been over the human family ever since Adam and Eve's terrible decision in the Garden of Eden. They had chosen to rebel against God. They had chosen to do what they wanted instead of what God said. And as a result, the sentence of death, of course, had passed upon them, and it had come upon one and all. For isn't it still true that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? But isn't it interesting that the worst death of all is not just physical death, spiritual death. To be separated from the God who is the all-powerful creator of all things good and who holds the absolute key of eternity to be separated from Him, and to have to live under the fear of experiencing His wrath. And yet, we notice here that Daniel, through Gabriel, was given this amazing message, God's plan to take care of transgression, to take care of sin, to take care of iniquity. Aside from the nouns, look at the verbs used in those three. To finish the transgression... Now, that was not to say that, the, that men and women were not going to sin anymore. That wasn't the idea, but wasn't it lovelier to contemplate that there would be put in place a system whereby one could be freed from the guilt of sin, to finish that powerful club that it holds over the human family. Look at the second one. To make an end of sins. Jesus Christ came, you see, to make it such that the power of sin is now removed. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, Beautifully, powerfully, and so wonderfully, that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanseth us from all sin. He made it possible, you see, for sin to lose its grip, sin to lose its power. Sin to lose the terrible dagger that it once had had. Look at the third one. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 still tell us, and listen to how the word iniquity appears there. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your sins, your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. We see what iniquity does. It drives us in separation from the true and holy and faithful God. And yet, Gabriel revealed to Daniel that there was that beautiful system whereby reconciliation could be made. You could be brought back to God, 
despite your sin. Of course, that would come by way of forgiveness. It would come by way of redemption. The first three lead us to the next three. He goes on to say, "...and to bring in everlasting righteousness." Righteousness. Isn't that a lovely word? The emphasis upon doing what's right as one appreciates the standard of God. And yet how often does the Bible bring before you and I the reality of righteousness? I've invited you to consider Romans 1.17. Beginning in verse 16 of that chapter, Paul in such dramatic tones and terms said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now listen, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. When one contemplates the righteousness of God, we are able to appreciate its message and revelation in the words of the gospel. Daniel was told a long time ago about the beautiful time when that gospel would become reality and the nature and blessing it would bring. You may notice as far as a practical application to you and me in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul there was able to say, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you and I obey the gospel and live in accordance to the things of God, he reckons us through the faith of Christ as righteous. The next one on that list given to Daniel Again, drawn from verse 24, and to seal up the vision and prophecy. Don't you just love the directness of that language? To seal up. That identifies that old Hebrew verb, to draw to a conclusion. To basically to put in a place and close it by virtue of a lid on a box. It's finished. It's completed. It has done its task and its job. You'll notice he was referring to vision and prophecy. Doesn't that highlight for us? The Old Testament had foretold the fact that there was going to come a time when those things would cease. Now, you and I know the New Testament would revisit that theme. Paul was able to say to the Corinthians, was he not, in 1 Corinthians 13? He had listed in the previous chapter nine miraculous spiritual gifts, but he quickly said, tongues are going to cease. This miraculous knowledge will no, longer be able, will no longer be available. And he went on to say, When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Even Daniel, you see, had been told that these things may exist in various appreciations on earth, but the time's coming when prophecy and vision, they're not going to be able to be appreciated that way anymore. Isn't it interesting, some in the human family still seem to feel as if portions and aspects of that still available. Would you go ahead and take note that verse 25 will mention the Messiah. With the coming of the Messiah, the ending of those things was going to take place. In other words, very shortly thereafter, they were no longer to be. One final thing is the sixth one in that list. It says, "...and to anoint the Most Holy." To anoint the most holy. May I offer some interesting reflections on the language used here? I think all of us would be quick to say that, was he talking about a thing? 
you know, after all, the ancient temple was pretty special. After all, you and I remember from the days of the tabernacle, it had in it a most holy place. It had in it the Ark of the Covenant with a mercy seat on top of it. I would suggest to you that in this place, he wasn't talking about a thing. He wasn't referring to a particular building or structure or edifice. That language to anoint the most holy. Keep in mind that though on occasion things were anointed, far more significant was the anointing that went with individuals. Like kings, they were anointed. Remember when Samuel was told to anoint Jesse, as the, uh, rather as David, as the next king of Israel? And in fact, he even anointed Saul prior to even the days of David. Maybe it's fair to say that it seems the connection to the next verse is evident. He's referred to the Most Holy. Gabriel, what further do you mean? Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, there we have it. He's directing Daniel's attention to the blessedness of those things that would transpire with the coming of the Messiah, the Prince. And notice we've already said the removal of transgression and sin and iniquity, the sealing up of vision and prophecy, the revelation of everlasting righteousness, and the anointing of the Most Holy. May I suggest that's special. You and I perhaps can imagine how Daniel's reaction must have been to hear about a message like this that was to benefit his people and that God was going to look with such favor upon, again, this people that currently were in such dire straits. They were in captivity. And yet, Daniel had been told very specially that God, to them, still was going to bring about these wonderful blessings. Now, they weren't going to happen immediately, as we're about to see in the chronology. But oh, what faith it must have engendered in Daniel and in others to whom he preached this message. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, it is a bit interesting, and I've chosen to attach it at this point. But it is to be observed in verse number 27 that some of these matters were in essence elaborated again. It says, "...He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause..." Watch it now. "...the sacrifice and the oblation to cease." Sacrifice and oblation. The Old Testament, as you and I know, that law of Moses was filled with various and sundry sacrifices that God had commanded. A study of the book of Leviticus will point out the burnt offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, the food offering, and that's just to name a few of them. And yet the time is coming that here Gabriel revealed to Daniel, in the midst of the week, this same prince is such that Consistent with it, he will cause, note the, note the noun he, the pronoun, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Can't help but point us to the book of Hebrews in which we read with such majesty the fact that he made one sacrifice for sins forever. One. There was no longer going to be a need for the continual burnt offerings and the continual sundry offerings. For you and I notice in Hebrews 10 verse 4, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. And they couldn't make the conscience of those clean either. Hebrews 10 verse 1. But beginning in verse 7 of that same 10th chapter of the Hebrew letter, 
He spoke with such tremendous power, that Hebrew writer did. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Now you'll notice he's referring to the covenants. He took away the first one, that he may put in place the second. Could you tell us some details? Verse number 12, we'll highlight it like this. He says again that he, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And thus, as this passage in Daniel pointed to what the Christ would make a reality, how blessed we have been ever since, and the human family has been. That slide will go on to invite us to consider as this prophecy was revealed to Daniel, one more time it pointed out 70 weeks. Now you and I know God doesn't speak just to hear His head roar. He speaks and His words carry significance and they carry meaning. There was something about the mentioning of 70 weeks. Let's use the remaining part of our lesson to reflect somewhat upon that chronology and to do so in the following way or perhaps in the following fashion. Seventy weeks is mentioned. Now you and I know well, literally, what seventy weeks would be. A year would be fifty-two weeks, and hence it'd be a year and then eighteen additional weeks. But that is if that's to be taken literally. May I offer to you this thought? It would strongly be suggested to us that that is not the way to interpret this. For the following reason, there were other places in the Word of God wherein figurative references to issues like this were made. For example, I would ask you to notice something as we begin this, having to do with the very mention of 70. 70 weeks. Now you'll notice roughly halfway through that particular slide is mentioned something that occurred in Numbers 14.34. Back at that time, you remember the children of Israel had come out of Egyptian bondage and they were journeying toward the land of Canaan. But here you'll notice they had arrived at Kadesh Barnea. The spies were sent out and ten of them came back and said, We can't take it. That land is everything we've ever thought that it would be, but we are unable to take it. They're stronger than we are. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. You and I might remember that God made a decree at that point. He decreed that for 38 more years they were going to wander in the wilderness. And it would be after a sum total of 40 years that they would ultimately arrive at Canaan. Have you ever wondered, why did God decree it 40 years? Why not 35? Why not 50? Why not 15? The text points out this in Numbers 14.34. It'll be 40 years, one year for every day that you were able to sojourn as a spy in the land of Canaan. Remember, they had gone into the land and spent 40 days there looking at it, considering it, investigating it. And he said, you're going to journey for a total of one year for every day you were there. Isn't that amazing? God didn't just decide arbitrarily on 40 years. It was based upon something that had transpired, a particular action in which they had engaged. Not only that, you'll notice in Ezekiel 4 verse 6, there was another reference there where they were to interpret 
the connection between a day and a year. The day represented the year. Now, in this instance, what might we say about this? If we take that approach, or at least operate upon that premise, 70 weeks, of course, a week has seven days. So 70 weeks would bring 490 days, which, of course, would transpire to 490 years. Could we then operate in the premise of appreciating, was God here saying, that there was ultimately going to be a representative time period of 490 years from this revelation to Daniel until the times of the fulfillment of these things. Well, hold on to that thought. As we develop that in just a moment, I think we're going to be amazed. I think we're going to be impressed by some of the things we'll encounter. But I would say that there's even more to be said about this even before we get to that point. And it has to do with this. Admittedly, it comes from 2 Chronicles 36. Would you turn back over to that interesting chapter that closes the book of 2 Chronicles? A moment ago, I raised the question and invited you to consider it with me that the 40 years of wilderness wandering were not arbitrarily selected. Now I like to ask the same thing about the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Was that an arbitrarily selected number? You and I have already noted at the outset of the lesson that God decreed 70 years for the duration of that time. Why did God select 70? Why not 100? Why not 200? Why not 50? Was there something interesting? Was there something especially significant to the God of heaven about what had transpired that led him to dictate and to determine 70 years of Babylonian captivity? Second Chronicles 36. We'll not read all of that chapter to be sure, but could I invite you to note this? I'll read just a few of the verses. Beginning in verse number 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priests... And the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon, and they burnt the house of God, and break down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia. Now I'm going to keep reading, but I want to stop long enough to remind us. He has just offered a biblical description of the Babylonian captivity. This is what God brought upon them because they mocked His messengers. They rebelled against His truth. 
They turn their back upon God. Now look at verse number 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years. God didn't arbitrarily select 70 years for the duration of the captivity. He here had told them, this is going to be this long because the land needs to enjoy its Sabbaths. It would appear that the people had failed to honor the various Sabbath regulations concerning the land. Remember, every seventh year it was to lie fallow. Every seventh year they were not to till it, to plow it. It would seem that since that happened every seven years, that for 70 considerations of that, which would be 490 years, they had failed. If that be true, that means the revelation to Daniel occurred at roughly the halfway point. It looked back 490 years on their failures to observe and to keep the various Sabbath regulations concerning the land, but it looked forward 490 years until the fulfillment of these things and the coming of the Prince, the Messiah. That's fascinating. Doesn't it remind us our God is in charge of the matters in time? Now back to the chronology. We've already noticed that the 70 years thus had some significance behind it. But you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, God even said more than that. May I direct you back to verse number 25. The 70 weeks was divided up into sections. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to re- restore and to build Jerusalem, unto the, prince, unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. If our appreciation to this point is correct, really all that we need to do, you'll notice he tells us when the counting must start. You start the counting, he said, from verse 25, from the going forth to restore and to build Jerusalem. If we can ascertain when that event took place, all we'd have to do is add 490 to it. And it would at least put us into the appreciation, it would seem, as to what this is suggesting. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide are some possibilities. As far as I'm able to determine from the Old Testament, isn't it interesting that from that time when God's people were in captivity in Babylon, we know that there was to be a first return, a first beautiful consideration in 536 B.C. That's the record of the book of Ezra. In Ezra's day, remember, Cyrus gave a decree and allowed the people to return all who wanted to. 536 B.C. By the way, that's exactly 70 years from 606 B.C., which had started the fullness of these events. The 70 years was up. But may I say, That's not the only possibility. For after all, we also learn something else from reading those Old Testament books. In fact, in Ezra chapter 8, there was another group that returned, this time led by specifically the man called Ezra. Now recall with me, Zerubbabel brought back the first group, and their chore was to rebuild the actual temple. 
they didn't really do such a good job completing that, by the way. They got the foundation laid. But you notice Ezra came back with a different charge. And it was a number of decades later. It wasn't until, as you can see, 457 B.C. When he came back, it was to restore the hearts of the people in their conviction toward keeping the things that God had revealed. But there was also a third one, the book of Nehemiah. It highlights Nehemiah came back with a group, and now their thrust, their goal, was to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now I wonder which of them, if any, would fit the prophecy that Gabriel had revealed to Daniel by looking at some numbers let me offer a thought, a consideration, and I think it'll be a very interesting one. Consider the second one with me for just a moment. The one connected to the events touching the mission of Ezra. Remember, in 457 B.C., he returned again with a group, and their goal was to instill within the people a conviction concerning the law, and thus to appreciate in it the return of the spirituality of Israel. Suppose we operate on that premise. Notice again, Gabriel divided this. He said seven weeks, under our knowledge before, seven weeks would, it be, would be 49 days, so that would be 49 years. If we start from 457 B.C. and go forward 49 years, we arrive at 408 B.C., You'll notice that in verse 25, it was told what should be expected to be accomplished during that time. It says, The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Now remember, we've already learned earlier that Nehemiah came back 13 years after Ezra, so that would have been roughly 444 B.C. And so over that period of time, Culminating in 408 B.C., the wall was rebuilt, the streets were reconstructed, the physicality of the city was primarily put back in place. All of that by 408 B.C. But notice, Gabriel went on to say this. He furthermore described, verse number 25, "...the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks." So next, 62 weeks now yet more to come. So 62 weeks, each week of seven days, that would total then to 434 days, which again, 434 years. So now if we take our 408 B.C. and add 434 years to it, it brings you to 26 A.D. 26 A.D. I suppose at this point you and I could then revisit the text. What was supposed to happen at the conclusion of the 62 weeks? It says the Messiah, the Prince. Now notice, that doesn't refer to the birth of Christ. But was there anything significant in His life that occurred in the year 26 A.D. that seems to harmonize with the text? The answer is yes. That's the year he began his public ministry. That's the year he was baptized at the age of 30. Luke chapter 3, verses 20 and following. If that be the appreciation, notice again how all of this comes together so remarkably. The Lord Himself with His baptism and then His public ministry. And you and I remember 
that only lasted, you see, a little over three years. A little over three years would be half of a week. What are we about to see? It says, verse number 26, And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, as you can see on, on that particular slide, we have thus given some thought to the seven weeks and then the 62. But 62 plus 7 adds to 69. It was a 70-week prophecy. There's one more week to discuss. And you and I have already begun to highlight what's going to happen. Look with me at verse number 27. And he, that's the Messiah shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week, halfway through the week, that's three and a half, you see, a week, seven days, so seven divided by two is three and a half, and so we're now giving thought three and a half years, that's exactly the duration of his public ministry. And it says, in the midst of the week, he shall cause the oblation and the sacrifice to cease, and in the previous verse, it had been highlighted that he was cut off. He was, he was to be put to death. He was to die. I would suggest that this is breathtaking. It's compelling to at least appreciate some of the details that were revealed to Daniel. Now, you'll notice that he has even delivered more than what we've had time to discuss. He spoke about how that there's another prince coming. May I invite you to notice, if you like to make marks in your Bible, you may appreciate the word prince in verse number 26 is not capitalized. It says, This prince that shall come shall destroy the city. That's a Roman general. But the prince of verse 25 is capitalized. That's Jesus the Christ. They're not talking about the same person. This prince that was going to destroy Jerusalem, Jesus talked about that. Do you remember in Matthew 24 when his apostles asked him, when will all these things take place? He had just said, not one stone of this temple will be left on another. And with great inquisition, they said, Lord, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? Matthew 24, 3. Jesus proceeded to that point to speak about the desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. We've just read about them. Jesus referred back to these matters, and He pointed out that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed just as Daniel had foretold it would be. But for you and me, how sweet it is to then appreciate the specific detail 490 years from those days until the events of the life and times of Jesus the Christ and what He would bring to reality and the blessedness that He would bring to all who would love the Lord. As you and I close that slide, maybe it's fair to say that our discussion about this particular chronology and the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel has set the stage for us to close our lesson like this. Notice again that this pointed to that time when Jesus would bring an end to sin, when He would seal up the vision and prophecy, when He would make available to human family a remedy for the sin problem. 
We no longer have to offer a bull or a goat or a sheep or something like that because it was never fully efficacious to do that anyway. And now we can avail ourselves of the blood of Jesus Christ who offered that one sacrifice for one and all, 1 John 2, verse 2. Did not John the Revelator say in Revelation 1, 5 that we are washed in His blood? And in that way, we can be freed from the guilt and bondage of sin. I hope tonight our faith has been encouraged by a reflection on Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. It, speak, it spoke so notably about the events in time and how God was in control of it. He could look down the stream of time, almost half a millennium, and say exactly what was going to happen. And it did, precisely when He said it would. You and I do not know when the Lord's going to come back the second time. He stated in Mark 13, 32 that even the angels didn't know. But we know this, He is coming. It's our task, our duty, our responsibility to be ready. Are you ready? Am I ready? If you're not tonight, the Lord's invitation is extended. And maybe those things spoken of by the prophet Daniel on this study this evening have motivated each of us in a compelling way to make sure that we're right with God. Tonight, if there's someone in this assembly who again perhaps has never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, you need to take care of that tonight. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow. Proverbs 27 verses 1 and 2 will still say, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Today is the day of salvation. The baptismal waters behind me are ready and prepared. And if we could be of assistance, you need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His matchless name as a Son of God and be baptized. If you have known that way of life and you have basked in the blessing of it, but you have walked away from it, you have followed down the roads that lead to destruction, you need to come back to your first love. Jesus is still beckoning for you to come back to Him. He wants you to go to heaven. If that's the scene and the need of your life this evening, won't you repent of those sins? If they are known publicly, you need to make sure that confession is known publicly. We'd be happy to assist you tonight by praying to God. We'd be happy to encourage you with warmth and with encouragement. But we need you to let us know how we can help. If we could pray for strength or for these things we've mentioned, we'd be delighted to do it. Please let us know how we can help while together we stand and while we sing.